Hi, everyone, and welcome to This Much I Know, the Seed Camp podcast with me, your host, Carlos Espinal, bringing you the inside story from founders, investors, and leading tech voices. Tune in to hear from the people who've built businesses and products, scaled globally, failed fantastically, and learned massively. Uh, we have a interesting topic today, which is one that many founders find themselves frequently in when they're building businesses that involve risk. And that is how to build trust online, how to create marketplaces that rely on trust to scale, how to assess trust and risk in your customer base, and then how to raise financing before you even have that established and therefore potentially at risk of having something go wrong later down the road when you're scaling up. And with us, we have two founders of two companies that are in that that line of, of, of business. One of them is the founder of Bonfito, and the other one is the founder of Cronex. I'll let themselves let, let each of them introduce themselves and uh, have Philip here, who's going to walk us through Cronex first. Uh, welcome, Philip, and and love to hear the, the your personal story, but also the story of, of Cronex. Thank you very much for having me today. Yes, yeah, so uh, my name is Philip Mann. I'm one of the founders and the CEO of Cronex. Cronex is a full-service platform for luxury watches. We enable private individuals and commercial resellers to buy, sell, and service watches for us. Um, a short background about myself. I was born in Germany, in Cologne, uh, to two Russian parents. Uh, then uh, did a, a bachelor's degree at King's College in London and a master's degree um, in Cambridge. Both uh, were actually focused on luxury watches and kind of trading dynamics and pricing of consumer goods. Um, and previously, I worked uh, shortly for BCG and Glencore in uh, physical oil trading. So what is Chronex? Um, Chronex is an online marketplace for luxury watches. We essentially connect over 600 retailers worldwide that sell anonymously for us. Um, what do we define as luxury watches? Luxury watches are anything above a thousand euros or pounds. Um, our average price being around 5,000 euros. And um, trust is very critical for us because we take care of the pre-sale service, after-sale service, logistics, payment, and authentication. So essentially, a customer buys from us. It feels like a normal e-commerce, but actually there's over 600 sellers in the background. Um, so you have the benefits of a marketplace like eBay, but the experience like Mr. Porter. Um, and so trust is kind of ingrained in the whole concept. Uh, first of all, by... Um, being the consolidator of the whole supply side, but at the same time, every product is authenticated, etc. So trust is very, very critical to our model because luxury watches are one of the product groups that are kind of one of the most produced fakes. Uh, and that's usually the, the kind of key impediment to stuff, uh, luxury watches being bought online. Excellent. Thanks for that, Philip. Hussein, uh, walk us through a little bit your background and what made you start on Fido. Hey, great to be here. So it's Hussein Kasai here. I'm one of the three co-founders and also the CEO at Onfido. And so I, as a quick background to myself, I was actually brought up in Iran. My father's Iranian and my mother's English. So as you'd expect, lived, lived half my uh, early sort of childhood in Iran and spent, as from the age of 11, uh, was brought up in the UK. I went to Oxford University where I met my two co-founders and later we founded the company. And now I am based out of our San Francisco office. And as a company, uh, on Fido, we're essentially in the business of building trust. Fido stands for trust in Latin, and Confido stands for confidence. And essentially, our mission is to help build trust in a digital age between human interactions. And so we set up the company essentially because we were background checked ourselves, and we saw that it was a very manual, labor-intensive and what seemed to be a broken process, 
And at the same time, we felt that the currency of the future would essentially be trust in the digital age, and that it's your identity that underpins transactions. And we set up the company and started to sell to first the on-demand sector, so uh, cleaners, nannies, tutors, doctors, uh, drivers, and so on. Then the sharing economy, home sharing, car sharing, and everything in between. Then fintech, so payments, remittance, crowdfunding. Then online banking, and, and now essentially retail banking. And the way that our system works is that we, in order to verify a person is who they claim to be, the typical user would click on that company's app, they'd hold out a driving license or passport, and take an image of that. And we've used machine learning-based technology to verify that that is a genuine document and extract all the data and so on. Then the user would take a short recording of their face, and then we would compare the person's face to the photo on their identity documents and give a confidence score of between zero and one as to how likely it is to be the same person. And the third and final step is to verify their location. And depending on what country they are across the world, we have different means by which we verify their actual location. And once, so that is verification and trust in the sense that the person is who they claim to be. And once that is done, the next step for the, those who want to, we also do database background checks. And it can be criminal or driving checks if in, it's in the on-demand sector or sanctions and politically exposed persons if it's, it's sort of a financial transaction. And that is based on is a person risky or not due to historic records being recorded on databases. And that is uh, both an overview of myself and also the company. Excellent. Well, let's go straight to the hardest question, which is the difference between the attributes a person has and the attributes of, of intention. You know, circumstantial changes in somebody's life can take a perfectly normal person and make them circumstantially criminal. And both of your companies are, are trying to tackle that in different ways. Maybe, Philip, you can, you can walk us through a little bit of, um, just like uh, Hussein did, walking us through kind of the way that you verify things. I mean, it sounds to me like it's verifying an asset and less the individual. Sure. But, you know, individuals can then create a lot of load for you, you know, unnecessary yep. loads. You can walk us through that process. Sure. I mean, um, actually, trust or preventing fraud is, is, is not just about the S, but actually also about the person. Um, this kind of starts with the fact that if you steal a credit card, the first thing you are going to want to buy is a Rolex or a MacBook. So um, the, the whole issue um, really means that we need to check who we interact with on a continuous basis. So essentially fraud management, payment fraud, et cetera, is extremely important. But the kind of key business model is we ensure that the asset is uh, authentic. What that means is when we start working with a retailer, we essentially do due diligence on them. We actually go to them um, on the ground, check the kind of stock that they have, check the driving license of the managing director, um, check that the company is incorporated properly, that the stuff is taxed properly, et cetera. And the next step, uh, when the item is actually sold, uh, what happens is that um, we pick up the item, so the watch, um, it is then brought to our hub. Um, we actually have watchmakers on the ground. The item is then disassembled, checked in 13 points, um, that everything is um, kind of authentic, but also that it's not stolen, that no parts have been exchanged, and that the item is actually what you think it is. And then it is shipped to the customer. And you also have an element of trust and fraud there because you you one of the issues that you have is actually shipping something that on average is around five thousand euros in value, um, so it must be insured. But also you need an ID check, which is quite difficult with many postal carriers, because uh, what frequently happened at the beginning is that these items were or watches were left with the neighbor or put in the rubbish bin, 
put behind the rubbish bin, uh, underneath the rubbish bin, etc. But um, there are actually a lot of issues when you deal with, I guess, um, sensitive data or high value assets where there's scope to, to defraud someone or where trust is important. So actually, the whole business model that we have is based on creating trust, but also within the operations, we need to make sure that we kind of get levers that uh, guarantee trust and guarantee a kind of solid pr process that avoids mess-ups and potential fraud. Mm. So it's interesting, Philip, you know, you're, you're walking us through a logistical process for trust validation, but I'm curious both for Hussein and for you, Philip, how you build into the products that you both have Yes. Uh, the recurring nature of trust. You know, with eBay, it's the five-star system. Yes. And the question is, will we ever hit a, a, a stage in product, in trust-based products, where we can skip the whole heavy verification and go straight into a light version because there is a the, we figured out a way of making sure that every transaction has a probability function that takes it down almost to zero, and you don't need to have a logistically heavy process for every incremental transaction. I mean, maybe to quickly answer this from my side, there's two ways to look at this. To create trust for the consumer that interacts with us. Yeah. I mean, at the moment, we're kind of in stage 1.0 of, of generating trust. So you have vicarious platforms like a trust pilot or trusted shops that give you trust. And uh, this minimizes the effort that the consumer needs to put in to determine whether you're, you're trustworthy. But I think there is no way today where you can really create trust aside from creating a valuable brand. And the brand is ultimately the biggest trust mechanism, but also the biggest value generating mechanism for kind of conversion rate increases, et cetera. I don't really know of a way to, to do this differently, but to create a valuable brand that is associated with trust, but the, you know, getting there is so intangible. And there it's, you know, you can't clinically disassemble what makes a growth in trustworthy brand, I think. It's, it, unfortunately, it's not that mechanical. Mm -hmm. And number two, um, you were saying, you know, what can we do to not create these processes? Um, I think inherently in human nature, there's always the luring of kind of optimizing for yourself or doing something slightly dodgy. Not every human, but um, there are sufficiently many humans you interact with when you have a heavy operational business where there's scope for fraud. And as a result, I think there will always be a tendency uh, that you need to create safety mechanisms that avoid fraud. Yeah. So, say maybe you can walk us through maybe what the future for Onfido will be in terms of the things that you mentioned before, which is a documentation ver verification, location verification, background check verification, is very different than repeated successful trustworthy actions. What's the future there? Good. Yeah, good question. Uh, and just to quickly pick up on what you suggested insofar as will there ever come a time where there, there may be uh, both a recurring side or just a probability, so there's not as much of a need to do these checks. Uh, there are First of all, the only reason why there are needs for checks and there is need, a need for tr trust, it only comes in when there's sort of an absence of guarantees. So if it, would be, if it was guaranteed that, say, a watch wouldn't go missing or that a person uh, in a car would not uh, do anything inappropriate, then there would be no need for trust. Trust is only needed when there are no guarantees. And when you look at the different types, so there are two versions essentially. One is trusting that a person is who they claim to be, which is on the identity verification side. And then the other side of trust is trusting that they don't have any records from their previous, from their history that may suggest they, they, they may be risky or not. Insofar as the background check side, and it, 
uh, on the recurring front, the issue becomes is that if an individual isn't on a, say, terrorist watch list today, um, that check can be carried out. But in a month or two, that person still needs to be checked again, just because there may have been an update to, to, to that record, for instance. But um, the, the point with so far as ongoing, it's once the person is verified the first time on an ongoing basis, all we would need is for them to just, they could just use their face to attribute or, or pull their history for the same client. So you're signing up to a platform, let's say it's a, it's a ride sharing platform. The first time as a consumer, we need your face, your identity documents and to verify your location. But the second time, if you want to unlock that car or if you want to enter that house, all we would need is just your face again, for instance. So that makes it uh, a lot more seamless to begin with. Does that answer your question? Yeah, I, I guess to some extent it does. Um, but it, I think the question, if you extend it further, is at what point do you realize that that face, although it is verifying that human, that that face is no longer welcome? And and how Correct. often do you? Exactly. And so exactly. And there are two... Maybe, maybe another way of asking this question so that I can get Philip's view as well is, let's take geofencing. You know, I was speaking to one of our companies that, that uh, was sharing some anecdotes, and maybe you guys can share some anecdotes as well. There are, and especially with data sets of, of, um, of transactions that geofence risk in certain areas, especially like say high fraud um, uh, neighborhoods or high fraud cities or high fraud uh, profiles of individuals. How do you create a product that doesn't fall victim of all this data that might be pointing towards certain patterns, but is borderline uh, racism or geolocationism or sexism or something else? Uh, how do you manage that uh, at, while at the same time keeping an eye open for uh, new customers and, and still building that trust across the user base? fully understood and there's an issue whereby essentially when there are weak signals so there's an individual and there's not much information on them um, th some look at social media some look at other data and they look to extrapolate that or, or make uh, to make judgments but we're far from perfect as humans in, in doing that so we don't do anything around that um, we only focus on fact-based verifications and not only don't we not do it but we're, we're quite against that too so our fundamental objective is to help customers uh, onboard more people so that essentially when you look at the fraud numbers statistically it's actually a significant minority that are bad actors it's two three percent or so uh, and not much more often typically and they ruin it or, or they damage the whole platform so across 100 percent have to suffer just because of two or three percent of the bad actors so what happens is in an imperfect world where there isn't much information, um, us as humans, we turn to, like you suggested, either prejudice or other views that are not objective and, and far from rational. So if you look at uh, the US, there were studies based out of Harvard looking at Airbnb users, and you're 16% less likely to be accepted for the same property if you're an African-American, for example. And there are very many other cases uh, that, that show the same thing. And for us, when we looked at background checks, we saw that small and medium-sized businesses were less likely to hire a UK national and were sorry, more likely to hire a UK national versus a foreigner just because that foreigner carries a risk premium. Do they have a right to work? Do they have a criminal record? And so on. Whereas our view was that the information, a quick and easy background check 
can verify that there is no risk premium and help people, just, just employers or, or agencies, select based on merit alone. But what, what, we, what we have, so what we are focusing on is helping onboard as many as possible by providing the information, but to get dub, double down on the one or two or three percent risky and bad actors who spoil it for everyone. And the way you do that is the machine learning component is actually by far the best approach. Because if a fraudster comes through and tries to cheat our system with a sophisticated fake document, because the machine learning components learns of, of all the fake patterns and so on, then that can be used to block all future fraudsters who are using similar fraudulent patterns. So as and when you become better at detecting fraudulent documents, it in, in a sense helps everyone because it helps build that trust so that platforms can onboard more users with better information as opposed to turning to either extrapolating social media or other data or just outright banning or blocking through geofencing and other tools. All right, well, Philip, how about for you guys? Because I mean, the margin for error on a $5,000 asset is far different than like, uh, perhaps like a recurring yeah. software as a service license. Yeah, I think at the end of the day, first of all, um, risk scoring is always associated with some sort of prejudice because you have a hypothesis that X has a higher um, chance of creating fraud, whatever X is. Now, X doesn't need to be someone who is of a certain gender or nationality, but still for us, for instance, it's income class. Yeah, so if somebody's uh, paying with a credit card and um, the limit of the credit card is small, the chances that they would kind of cause a credit card chargeback, for instance, are higher. So is it prejudice? No. Is that an assumption that is based on a hypothesis with maybe a flawed idea of why that's the case? Potentially. Um, generally, what's quite difficult for us, looking at payment fraud, for instance, is um, that you can't just make one assumption and um, <clears throat> kind of generalize this for all future transactions. To give an example, the most basic thing that most e-commerce looks at when it's credit card transactions is a billing and shipping address. If they don't match, that's a high indication of fraud. Now, with us, where you have people who buy $5,000 assets, actually they have holiday homes or multiple homes. Now, does that make them fraudsters? No. Um, it actually complicates understanding trust or whether someone is trustworthy with conventional methods. So what we look at is as many variables as possible. And essentially, I think Hussein talked about this or also, but you try to kind of make the time frame you can look at and the amount of variables of a certain user as long as possible. So we look at email, age, etc. Now that seems trivial, but the more time relevant data you have on someone, the more you're likely to actually be relatively confident that that person is who you think they are and that they act how they've acted in the past. Mm. Excellent. And how have you both uh, <clears throat> built in, I mean, to some extent, Philip, you've built this into your product. Maybe there's elements about your product that you can show off um, just verbally that capture that flow so that you are optimizing for high conversion yes. while at the same time assessing risk. Yeah. I mean, when you there's when people ask us, you know, why would I buy a luxury watch online? We obviously have the you know benefit of price and selection, etc. But this is not always obvious to users. And at the same time, even if it's obvious at the beginning, especially there was the notion, okay, I have a risk premium of buying online, and yes, I may have a better selection or a better price, but actually I'm going to take a risk. Now, what we do all day, pretty much is to minimize this perceived risk or to actually eliminate it by saying, you know, we're not an online player, we're not an offline player, we're just the number one for luxury watches. 
And so it's a really a positioning uh, question. I, I spoke a little bit about brands, so I'm not going to go into too much detail. But one very central thing to conversion on our side is conversion. Uh, sorry, not conversion, uh, communication. Yeah. So um, all you know, many trivial aspects like live chat, telephone, etc., are very critical to us. Many probably like to other e-commerce. But for us, for instance, we know that the duration that the customer spends on the telephone with our customer care people actually has a huge impact on their conversion likelihood. So whereas, you know, if you're kind of um, mass market e-commerce like Amazon, you're going to try to hide your telephone number. What we actually do is not only we try users to get to call us, but if they want to tell us about their upcoming ski holidays for two hours, then they're welcome to because that generates a kind of very personal interaction. And as much personal communication as you get, the higher the conversion. And uh, that is obviously something that is associated with brand because you get a personal touch to Chronix. But at the end of the day, it kind of humanizes a very anonymous retail transaction. And we think that this is very central. So we've seen the more we've done um, in terms of kind of making communication easy and actually increasing the amount of communication intervals that we have with our customers and their lead time, the higher the chance of conversion and actually the higher the chance of them converting with a higher ticket. And to give you one concrete example, we actually have pay on delivery now. So people buy online, but they actually pay on delivery. They either go to our boutique in London. We're now going to roll this out further um, in other countries or to our store in, in Germany, for instance. And what we see is um, since we've brought that online, we actually increase the online conversion across all other payment channels just because people know we must be a serious non-dodgy company, essentially, because you can actually physically visit us, even though they didn't use it. And that's quite interesting. Mm. Hussein, how have you been working with people that have integrated uh, your product into their product to effectively consult for them some ways of building out a product that kind of simulates some of the maybe software variants of what Philip described for a relatively more retail and hardware product? Good question. And so we're uh, API only, essentially, and we don't. So we encourage uh, all clients to just use our SDKs. So that um, it helps them with the builds, and also when when it depends on the quality of images that we capture, and and so on, it, it impacts on on the quality of the verification. Hence, we de developed all that, and, and sort of we're, we're we're consulting in the sense of on the technical side, we're very hands on. We've got a technical team of about forty eight now, and and sort of we we focus on on priding ourselves on that. But as to separately on on the way that we go about with a customer engagement. And we're naturally a business to business, and then we're B to B to C, so to speak. Yeah. And it's all around when we sit with them, we understand intimately what the key problems and challenges are, and we talk through different workflows so that we can help build that essential trust. And whereas, sort of, on our business, it's sort of different in that if we take the the first sector that we went into, the on-demand cleaning business four years ago, the for if you imagine there are ten different providers say in the UK, just doing cleaning, uh, on-demand cleaning. Once the first two clients sign up and they can see how we are reducing fraud significantly, the other eight providers disproportionately get all the fraudsters or all the risky applicants. So then you have five other businesses signing up. Then the last five, they are left with all of the risky applicants. And finally, the only two that aren't customers, they're left with all or the vast majority of the risky applicants. So what our clients quickly saw that as soon as they were using us and they were building trust in an effective way, they just tended to grow and get better customer reviews and everything else that came with it. And the ones that didn't um, essentially fell behind. So we quickly became a standard in each vertical that we went into. But this is um, the, the approach has only be, been because we, we explained that we're not just, say, an identity document checking or just facial recognition or just background check. 
these are a, a means by which we deliver. And what we are here to do is help build trust. And because that's been our approach and it's been very much a consultative based one, it's worked very well uh, for us. Excellent. So maybe to wrap things up, because I know you need to head off, Philip. Uh, Sorry about that. Yeah, no worries, no worries. Uh, let's wrap up with the top three pieces of advice you'd give to a founder who's starting a business that requires trust, whether it be a social network, whether it be a, an e-commerce company. What are the top three lessons, maybe we can start with you, Philip, that you would pass on to them in, in as a way of preventing them pain later? Sure. I mean, I very much have the retail lens on, so I'll, I won't try to generalize, but I'll speak for someone who, who does something with commerce. Um, so what we did from day one is try to think of all the attributes that um, created trustworthy company in your field. For us, that was kind of age of the company, size of the company, and ease of reaching the company. So actually, my co-founder and I, when we started the company in the kitchen, we actually had eight fake employee names to kind of recreate the assumption that the company is much bigger and um, essentially to give you an idea that it's a longer standing company with more capital, more employees, etc. Seems very trivial, but um, you know the customer really appreciates different names in the email. Obviously, you need to be careful if you pick up the phone. Um, number two, one of the things that was extremely critical is to think about attributes that especially for digital companies are maybe less obvious. Things like the address you rent, you know, if you want to start a, uh, in a business that is, I don't know, in finance or uh, in, in kind of high value retail, you don't want to have your address in, in shortage, for instance, no matter how cool shortage is, you know, the association a customer will have is not going to be very reliable. At the same time, you don't want to be in a region's office uh, because there's 2000 other companies registered there. It doesn't make you seem very serious. So try to get an address and things that are similar like an address. Uh, that suggests, again, trust and more kind of solid attributes of a long-standing business. Um, and the third thing is you, when you need to create trust, um, it's okay if you make mistakes, but really, I think actually, especially when you create mistakes, you can ensure that your user will become more loyal to you. You know, people talk about uh, car rental companies in the US, they frequently actually say, sorry, we, we don't have your car anymore. So they can upgrade you. It's okay to make mistakes if you're starting, if you just have a minimum viable kind of retail experience or fintech, etc. But really take the time to show the customer that there's a real person behind it. Try to get the um, experience right and, and show them engagement. If you show engagement, kind of this will create more trust than having a perfect, flawless experience, but rather the human aspect of really trying hard to get it right when you got it wrong. I think that's very important. Excellent. Thank you for that. Hussein. Yeah, just to add to that, so if there are three things. Two is, is how to build a platform that has trust at its core. And third is just uh, a bit of advice for any entrepreneur listening uh, on the side of trust. So the first is that to make it a, a frictionless experience as much as possible. So the user um, is not, all, you're essentially your conversion will stay the same, if not increase, at the same time as building trust. So it doesn't need to be a frictionless uh, a process with friction. It can very much be a frictionless process. And as long as it's a mobile first approach or whatever the application may be, just bearing in mind the workflow it has got the user's um, experience at its core at the same time of, of building trust. Second is that it has to be an effective um, process whereby across, if it's a FinTech platform or any on-demand or sharing economy or, or almost any application you can think of, is to recognize the importance of trust and that it's very much at the core of, of the brand, especially if you're not a traditional bricks and mortar, say, large bank with, with a, 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 a 
Canary Wharf kind of postcode. So that means it has to be effective. And the second point is that to ensure that whatever process is put in place uh, actually works. Because one bad story or one negative news article can create a lot of damage, which you can overcome if you're established, but it's less easy to do so if it's, if it's sort of your early days and it's the first company, the first say, few months. So second point is to recognize the importance and ensure that it is effective, whatever solution you do put in place. The third yeah. on trust more broadly is trust in you as an entrepreneur and that it is a very small world and it, reputation counts for a lot. And it is very common for if, it, if you're B2B and a business is signing up to your system, they will call your other clients and ask for references. And it's the same very much with investors too. And there is a tendency for entrepreneurs to be so excited about what they're doing to overpromise what they're able to deliver and therefore disappoint clients. Whereby a much better approach would be to not underpromise, but just essentially set, um, just, just explain what, what will be done and then double down on impressing. And because you haven't overinflated expectations, you tend to delight and you tend to impress. And then those businesses will then in turn um, just promote you to others. And that just is so much better of a strategy than, than to overpromise to, to, let's say, make a sale and then under deliver. If necessary, wait for six months until your product is ready, until you can actually deliver and impress in the long run. That often works out so much better than, than the other way around. Yeah, and just quickly to add to this, um, I think Hussein said it, you know, trust, be very clear about how trust is relevant for your business model, you know, whether it's a B2C, B2B, whether it's, it's a SaaS, it doesn't matter. Um, I think it's you need to be clear on how trust is relevant for your success and make sure that one of the people starting the business, one of the founders, actually has trust as one of the results on their agenda. So we actually had, you know, one person was in charge for tech, one person was in charge for marketing, and then also trust, for instance. So you should have somebody who's clearly in charge of that, look at forum reviews, um, you know, anything that couldn't be mildly associated with trust, it's, it's very relevant. Okay, well, on that note, guys, Thank you for joining. It's been a great talk. Learned quite a bit about how to build trust in a startup and hopefully founders got a lot of value from this. Until next time. Real pleasure. Thank you for the time.